Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden. I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. The sun is shining again. It's great. It summer. is. We've had some interesting weather over the last couple of days, but nothing bad. I mean, it's been a pretty yeah, great get summer these so far. Storms. I think this might be like one of the best weather Julys slash early August in a long time. And the sunsets have been amazing yeah. like day in, day out. They've been great. I like being able to walk out in the morning and feel like a nice cool breeze come in. And then by the end of the day, it's nice and hot. So you can get out, get to the water, that kind of yeah. stuff. We have a bunch of little stories to talk about this week. So why don't we jump right in? The first thing and, and one of the coolest bits of news out of the last week is that the Land Trust has met their goal for fundraising for Pebble Beach. Yeah. When I gave you the list of topics, I was purposely trying to think like, all right, I don't want to go on an annoyed rant this week on the podcast. So <laughs> we're going to talk about some really cool stuff. The Pebble Beach thing, they knocked out $500,000 in fundraising in like less than two weeks. Right. It's amazing. And it's really cool to see the outpouring of connections and support for that property. And I was talking to someone from the Land Trust the other day, and they said, you know what's really been cool? So I thought this was going to be a lot of like our generation, which for me means like roughly like 30 to 45 years old who have these connections, like younger people, but they said like, man, it's crazy. Like so many people in their twenties and so many people in their eighties who like the connection to that property is so much bigger than this person expected it to be. And I, I would say the same thing. Like wait, I've seen some stories roll in. Some of the biggest funders were people who are 80, 90 years old who said, I want to preserve this place for my grandkids to enjoy and have the same connection that I have. And then I've got uh, messages from people who are like, hey, I got engaged there. Or um, some of the people I know, like, it's where we would go to relax and get a break between work. It's also like when something, unfortunately, awful has happened in in my life, like if uh, when we've lost friends, it's kind of like a place where you're like, all right, let's just go there and stare at the water for a while and collect ourselves and and be together with friends and just out of the crowds and be in like a Zen moment. And like, it means different things at different times to so many different people. And it's shown up. People have put their money where their mouth is. Well, and I think it's so cool too, that this community gives, it really does. Mm -hmm. And it supports each other. We support each other here. So to see it done in the way that it was done, you've got the village partnering up with the land trust and then accepting donations from the community. It really is kind of that perfect three part commitment that mm -hmm. all came together to show that this is an important thing to do and that uh, the what they want to do with it is great too. I mean, they're striving to protect it in its natural form and that's great. Yeah. And now the village embarks on their fundraising effort. They they wanted the land trust to go after their funds first and they are still accepting donations. The village still needs to put up a million bucks. So they're hoping to get that from a grant, but they know the more money that they are able to fundraise, the better it looks for grant purposes. So if they raise another $100,000 and then they go to Knowles Nelson for nine hundred, and they can show that there's 
$600,000 in community support behind it, that only bodes better for them in getting more grant dollars. And so people can still donate through the land trust, and that will just be going toward the village's portion of that property, which is they committed to a million dollars. So right. Well, keep and, giving. Yeah, and that's a great thing, too, because not only are you helping to ease the burden on the village in that way, but you're also sending a message that these types of things are important. And the more support something like this gets, the better it's going to look in the future when when other groups try to come together to save other property up here. Yeah. And uh, if you go on DoorCountyPulse.com, the article about the land trust meeting their goal, uh, you'll find out a little bit more about the, I think, the Wiley family that uh, made a big pledge at the end to put it over the top. You'll also see a really cool drone photo by Brett Kozmeiter of our partner business here at Peninsula Filmworks that shows the whole cedar forest and also like the big horseshoe of Pebble Beach. When you've seen it like I have from the ground level all the time, it was, it's pretty cool to see it from up high and see like the whole scope of it. And it's a really beautiful property. Right. Uh, if you want a little bit more information about the background behind this project, there's an article on DoorCountyPulse.com. Uh, we also did a video for it, and that's on our Facebook page as mm-hmm. well. So, And we did a podcast two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. Right. You um, and I broke it down a little bit more. If you're just hearing about Pebble Beach for the first time and you want to know more, definitely check that out. But really good news that funding was met and that things are going to move forward the way that they should. Next up, Horseshoe Bay Farm selects a firm for their master planning. So we've talked about Horseshoe Bay Farms, uh, particularly, I think, last year when they sold. Give me kind of the elevator pitch. What is Horseshoe Bay Farms and what does this mean in terms of the next steps for the property? All right. Yeah. Another one of my favorite properties, having grown up in Egg Harbor, Horseshoe Bay Beach was like a favorite destination for our family. A couple miles from our house. I just think like beautiful uh, piece of the landscape there. The Nicholas family bought it last fall. And with the idea to create a nonprofit and eventually create a community space there, refurbish it and create something that could maybe host events and be a community garden, a learning center about the history of ag because Horseshoe Bay Farms goes back more than 100 years um, to at one time it was a very innovative, groundbreaking dairy operation. Later, it was a orchard at one point was the largest employer in Northern Door County, I think, um, seasonally. And just has a, a great history in the county from like an industrial and from an ag standpoint. And now from a historical aspect. There was a, a cherry camp that was there at Horseshoe Bay yeah. Farms, which is great. So a lot of people remember spending their youth there, picking cherries and doing that kind of stuff. We produced a video about the history of Horseshoe Bay Farms for the Door County Visitor Bureau. You can see that on doorcounty.com. Uh, so if you want to learn more about that. But what specifically does this mean in terms of the master plan? How is this moving forward? So what the Nicholas family is kind of creating a structure to eventually end up with like a full community board. Um, Right now it's kind of the family getting things rolling. And they've hired a firm called 10 by 10 out of Minneapolis to create a master plan for the property. I'm sure they'll take some information from what Glenn Timmerman and his effort had done seven or eight years ago when he was trying to get something similar going. But they will like I said, come up with some ideas for that community garden. Also look at like what still needs to be done with that space, create the kind of st- board structure that they want. And that firm also has like uh, a lot of expertise in landscape architecture. Uh, Max Dixon actually is a kid that I once coached in high school basketball. He went to grad school for landscape architecture, actually once worked with 10 by 10 and will work on this project. Even though he lives out in Philadelphia, he's going to be a consultant on this project. He grew up a little bit down the road at the Shallows Resort, and his, I think, grandfather worked at Horseshoe Bay Farms. 
for many, many years. Right. So there's that so, connection. So there's some kind of cool connections to the firm that's going to be working on this property. So they're going to have a lot of expertise on it. And we'll see what the next stages are, I'm sure, over the next couple of months. You'll see some public meetings where people can give some input and see what that what comes to that property. Right. That's the thing that I find so exciting, too, because there are some pieces of history that you want to preserve exactly the way that they were. And there are other pieces that you want to preserve the heritage of and the integrity of and the story of, but repurpose into something that will continue to get use for years on and that yeah. will that will be kind of a uh, a monument to the history of the property. And I think that this is a super cool idea. It turns that property into uh, a really beautiful spot for the community to gather in. And uh, I think that that's a great legacy for the property. And planning that larger piece and having like a strategic idea for this is important because if you take a building and you move it out of its place, Ed McMahon was this consultant that came up here from the Urban Lands Institute like a dozen years ago. And he talked a lot about sense of place. And he, he had some pictures of historic structures and you, you'd zoom in on them and it would be this historic barn structure. But then he'd talk about sense of place, so he'd zoom out, and to the right was a McDonald's, and to the left was a gas station. And he said, what was the point of preserving this thing when it really lost its meaning around this? Now, sometimes it's still good. It's still good to have it. Sometimes it becomes part of the storytelling. But like Horseshoe Bay Farms is one of those places that you really need the sense of place. Because those barns on their own are really majestic and really cool. But let's say at one point there was development slated for the right and left of that. There was a proposal to build some condos down there. What makes that so impressive is it's it's situated right below the bluff. It's got that beautiful field to the one side of it. But if that was all condos, it would kind of lose its context, I guess. So we'll see what they come up with when it comes to like that larger scheme for that property. Cool. Moving on, Miles, I just want to say to preface this, uh, I'm proud of you. We have gone a little over a month without talking about high school athletics. Uh, I know that we were we were in a, a, a rut where it's like every week we're going to talk about high school athletics. But now we have some more high school athletic news, so we can jump right back in. Uh, the Sturgeon Bay football team is moving to eight-man teams. Yeah, so this is, I know you're not the, the biggest high school sports fan. Now, I, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan, but I will say that 95% of my participating in high school athletic comes from listening to you talk about yeah, it. So. There you go. <laughs> so Sturgeon Bay High School kind of abruptly announced that they were switching to eight-man football. This is usually a decision that's made like a year in advance. Um, but apparently their numbers are down so much that they had to switch from 11-man to eight-man to field the team. And they're not the first school in the county to do this. In fact, Southern Door is now the only school this fall that will be playing full 11-man football. Sevastopol, Gibraltar, and then down in Kiwani County, Algoma, have already switched to eight-man. So... This one means Surgeon Bay is scrambling to fill a schedule. It also means Southern Door is scrambling to fill the spots, and a bunch of other schools are scrambling to fill the spot that Surgeon Bay said. Surgeon Bay, Southern Door is a big rivalry. They don't play now. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. And Surgeon Bay is actually the biggest school in the county. It's one thing when Gibraltar was... I played at Sevastopol Gibraltar when it was a combined program. And at that time... Between the two schools, you had like 450 to 500 kids, and we still got spanked all the time. But then when they switched to individuals, Gibraltar and Sevastopol at one point had like 210 kids each, but they each had their own 11-man team. So it's kind of surprising to me that Sturgeon Bay, with still almost 400 kids in their high school, can't field a team, which might be an indication of 
diminished interest in football or parents allowing their kids to play full contact football. I'm not sure what it is. Matt Pottis is actually working on this story right now, but it's, it's just kind of interesting. You went from football will never die. It's an integral part of the high school sports athletic experience for guys. And it is Friday nights to very quickly, almost the end of 11 man football and Southern doors went from having 80 guys out for their program eight or nine years ago to about 40 now. So who knows how long they're going to continue. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate and ask some questions that I totally know the answer for. But for anybody who doesn't know, uh, because, again, I, I know so much about sports. You said it's 11-man teams normally, right? Yeah. What's the big difference between 8 and 11? If you play 11-man football, you end up needing a lot more bigger guys to play on the offensive line and defensive line. So you just need a lot more size. Like when I played, you played both ways. So you play offense and defense, and you get kind of exhausted. You do need a lot of subs. And so to play 11-man, you probably more practically need like 25 players. That's what I was getting to. So it's not just that you need a team of 11 people. You need closer to 25. To field a basketball team, you could feasibly play an entire season with, if you went injury-free, you could play with seven guys. I've, I've fielded freshman basketball teams who played with just seven players. If you had nine, no problem. You could deal with a couple injuries, maybe a suspension here and there. Guys get tired. They're just going to be in better shape. But football, you need a much greater number of guys out for the team. Yeah, you need to at least be able to replace everybody once once over. Yeah. And then um, soccer, you probably, you need a lot because they also have 11 guys on the field, but you don't have as many injuries to deal with. They have to be in much better shape, but they just generally are in better <laughs> shape. But football, you just have a lot more injuries, a lot more guys getting banged up and things like that. So do you think that this is coming from smaller school sizes or do you think it's coming from a, a shift in students wanting to play football or being allowed to play football? I think there's a little bit of both. I think you can't underestimate the fact that schools just have fewer kids now. Across the state, high school enrollment is just, there's just fewer kids in high school in any given moment by like the tens of thousands. I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, and this is what uh, Wayne Lubecki at the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association told me. He goes, you're just going to have fewer teams because you're going to have lower and lower enrollment numbers. But you also have more sports. When I was in high school 20 years ago, you didn't even have soccer at Gibraltar. So that's taking 11 guys, minimum. As you start adding that kind of thing up, the other extracurriculars that have been added over the years, you're just spreading that pie thinner. So a sport like basketball, where you only need to find five to get on the court, easier to survive with that than it is to survive with football. Football is also more expensive. There's always going to be a certain number of kids who just don't want to get hit that hard and risk the injuries. And now with the concussion fears that people have, and rightfully so, I think you're going to see a certain number of parents who just aren't going to want their kid to play and a certain number of kids who just read that stuff and go, I don't want to bang my head against people. So it only takes, if you're talking about a small school, if one or two kids per class decide, I don't want to risk concussions, and one or two parents per class say, even though my kid wants to play, I'm not going to let him, well, now you're down two to four kids. And over four grades, that's eight to 16 kids. And that means the difference between being able to field a football team or not. Right. So. Didn't you write an article about concussions and, and high school athletics and that kind of stuff a while back? Yeah. Yeah, I remember you doing research and calling around for that. That must have been interesting for you, especially as somebody who used to coach. 
Yeah, I mean, when I was coaching high school basketball, it was right after they started implementing what was called the impact test, and they still do it. They test kids at the beginning of the season. In, in my case, they were testing them at the beginning of the basketball season. Generally, I think now they do it every year before you play any sport. So if you play football, you get tested. You just have to do that for the whole year. But it sets a baseline for your like reaction times and recallability, I think. It's been a while since I looked at it. And then if you do hit your head, well, you go take that test again. And so instead of them saying, oh, I feel kind of groggy or, oh, I still think I have sort of a headache. Instead of going on a kid's evaluation of their own brain, you're giving them a test to evaluate their brain because a few years before they started doing this, it literally might go to like a, somebody asking a kid, how do you feel? Mm, I, I'm, I'm okay. Right. All right, get back in there. Or a parent saying, he's good to go. Like, that's how those decisions were made for a long, long time. Now they give them another test, and until you get back to your baseline, you're not allowed to play again. Right. Interesting. Uh, anything else about high school athletics before we move on? Uh, that'll do it for me. Cool. So up in Sister Bay, we've got a couple of things to talk about. First off, I've been seeing a lot of people asking about the water that's been pumping out of the boathouse on the bay. What is that about? Um, that is severely contaminated water that people shouldn't touch because it's, no, it's kidding. That is just, uh, <laughs> so at the boathouse on the bay, they are kind of at the lowest elevation point in Sister Bay. And with the rising water, that's just, their basement is below the water table. So it's just filling their basement. They have a bunch of commercial pumps down in the basement now, three pumps, pumping as much as 420 gallons of water out of that basement every minute. So that is hundreds of thousands per day. And they're pumping it over the sidewalk into the storm drain. It's fine water. It's clean water. It's the same stuff that's just running underground. But, you know, you have an old building like that that has maybe cracks or holes in the foundation. You got to pump that water out. What they've done to make it a little more palatable for people is they've built these bridges at their own expense over their pipes and stuff. So it's to make it better for the village. The village is working with them to try and find a solution to either pump the water into some old lines that have been capped that weren't in use or to work with neighbors to try and find a way to use other storm drains. Meanwhile, the owners of the boathouse, they've looked at solutions like plugging the holes in the basement. But if they do that, they've been told there's a pretty good chance that what that would do would just build up pressure around their foundation, which might squeeze the foundation and cause an even bigger problem. Right. So you'd stick a finger in one hole and then water would come out of another hole. Yeah. It'd be like a cartoon. Yeah. And potentially like crumble or lift up from underneath your foundation. So there's actually a rental home next to theirs that is suffering from the same problem right now. When we had Husby's, we had a similar problem in the spring. You'd always get runoff on the bluff that would roll down and it would go into the Husby's basement. So our basement would be wet for a good chunk of the spring. But then we were on the hill so it would just go in our basement, out our basement, and into the next business and keep flowing its way down the hill. We never had the buildup. They're suffering from being at the bottom of the hill. I did talk to John Canavy, who owned that building in the 1970s and 80s, when it was Canavy's Kitchen. And in the mid-80s, when the water levels were as high as they are now, he said he was pumping 250,000 gallons of water out of that basement every day, 24-7, for three and a half years. So, again, Mike Dobner had, had called him as well and was like, what did you do back then? He goes, just kept getting pumps and kept getting generators because if you have a power outage, you need those pumps to keep working. Otherwise, right. your basement's going to flood real quick. Wow. So, 
Then they would really be the boathouse on the bay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what's happening with the water, the river in Sister Bay. Well, now I know. One more thing uh, in Sister Bay before we take a break here. Uh, tell me about the progress of the shuttle. How's that been working over the oh, last yeah. couple of weeks? So Sister Bay relaunched their free shuttle service this summer, right around 4th of July weekend. And they just kind of released a little bit of information about that. They, the numbers continue to grow. They're giving about 450 to 500 rides every weekend, operating Thursday through Saturday. It's growing with each week, even though they've had a couple of weeks where they've lost a day of service where the you know, shuttle had to go in for repairs, and they don't have a backup shuttle, so they can't just trade it out. Right. But they're pretty pleased with the growth. It has not been getting as much use during the day, but they are getting a lot of use in the evenings. They're running it from, I think it's 11 a.m. to 1 a.m., so they're getting a lot more use in the dinner time and evening hours. So hopefully taking some cars off the road in Sister Bay and hopefully giving people safe rides home, largely from the motels. It's some of the motels along the stop that have been using it predominantly. And it takes people everywhere from Fred and Fuzzy's on the south end of Sister Bay to JJ's on the north end, technically in Liberty Grove. But yeah, it's good to see that it's working and they're keeping track of numbers really closely this year because the last time they did a trolley, they didn't really keep track of the numbers. So... It was a test, but it didn't really have data to back it up. So now they're hoping by keeping all these numbers, it can take a, a solid look at when it's working, if it worked, what they can tweak, and if they should keep doing it. So if you want them to keep doing it, hop on the shuttle. The yeah. numbers help. Yeah, why not? If you're trying to get home safe, it's a great idea. It's one of the better ideas that you could have. And just if you want to, you know, have a little convenient ride, that's another good reason for it too. And it stops at each stop every 20 minutes. And in the evening, every 30 minutes. So you can catch it pretty frequently. And you can actually follow its location to find out where it's at. Uh, they set up, I think it's called Follow Me. They put a phone on it that just has the tracker going. So you can always see where that shuttle is. Nice. So if you want to see, like, oh, is it 15 minutes away? Do I got time for one more drink? I can. So, yeah. Cool. That's your update on the shuttle. Great. So with that, why don't we take a break? And then when we come back, we're going to check in with Maddie Sherl about her takeaways from the Women's Fun Luncheon. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Pankin Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, we are back. How are you doing, Maddie? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. So uh, you went to the Women's Fun Luncheon, right? How was that? It was great. It was really interesting. Cool. Tell me a little bit about the Women's Fun and, and what they do. So the Women's Fund is, I think, the only fund in Door County that's set up specifically to give money to non-for-profits in Door County that benefit women and girls. So right now they're doing a big project with North... Western Technical College, 
Northeast North Wisconsin Asian, yeah. Technical Jeez. College. I have the I have the acronym in my head, and I was trying to figure out what the acronym. Anyway, it's um, all right. You are you are not a native. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's just, but, They're all just directions. Right. You. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but um, it's called Invest Dream Achieve, and it's for women in Door County who are going back to school, and it helps them save money and set up savings account and also take classes. So I thought that was a really interesting aspect. Just knowing a little bit about the Women's Fund, having them been around now for 10 years, we talked a little to Vicki Wilson, I think last winter, when we interviewed her at Door County Coffee, and she's been a, a big supporter, and I think she's on the board of the, door, the Women's Fund. But just talking about, like, they do these kind of micro loans and programs that I think are really cool because it's just geared toward local women just trying to, they just need that little bit extra to have a solid base to move forward in their life, whether that be mm-hmm. going to technical college, finding a loan to get a couple of steps ahead. Right. A lot of people, it's not about, I need $50,000 or a million dollars. For so many people, especially maybe a young mother or a single mother or just a single woman just trying to move from maybe an inconsistent job to consistent employment, Mm-hmm. It might be just, I just need a couple grand that I can afford to go to college or afford to take some classes. And that seems like a lot of what they're getting after. Yeah, is- yeah. And one of, there was just a statistic that kind of popped out to me that the national average of women that work outside of the household is like 40%, but in Door County, it's like 55. Hmm. And they're disproportionately affected by like, income disparity and all of that. So I thought that was something I didn't know that was interesting. That is interesting. That would be that much higher. But I guess now that I think about it, it doesn't doesn't shock me a lot because so many more places are two-income households up here. So, Maddie, tell me about the (laughs) luncheon. Is the the luncheon one of their bigger fundraisers that they do? Yeah, it's one of the bigger fundraisers that they do. And they have in attendance almost all of their groups and non-for-profits that they've given money to. So... It's a cool way for donors also to meet people who've benefited and, um, yeah. Well, I think several years ago I attended one of the Women's Fund luncheons, probably like seven, eight years ago when they were very early on in their stage. And at that point, being a young male idiot, I was like, well, what is, what's the Women's Fund for? Like, what, what's this all about? And I'm like, okay, let's go. I found it just really cool to be in a room. I go to a lot of meetings. It's mostly old, white males. And to go into a room and just be surrounded by two to 300 strong, powerful women with mm-hmm. opinions, with a voice, and without the chauvinistic nature <laughs> of a lot of the men, it was just really invigorating. I come from a, a household with, I have four sisters. And so I was kind of used to being told what to do by women most of my life. But <laughs> you don't see that that often. I kind of was curious, Maddie, what was that experience for you like? Maybe that's different for you know, you're about a generation younger than me, maybe <laughs> maybe two. Maybe that's more commonplace, but I wonder, did you have some sort of reaction to that? Uh, what did it feel like in that room? What did you take away from it from that sense? Yeah, so it was definitely very empowering and very cool kind of how you're talking about to be in a room that's like everybody in that room can relate to me on a level that's, I think, different than in a room full of men. And there was a panel discussion beforehand that I thought was really, really enlightening And that talked a lot about, so there were local businesswomen, and they talked about how it's really important, the kind of refrain I was getting was advocating for yourself and then like surrounding yourself with people who are encouraging, which I think especially in the workforce as like a young woman, it's really hard self 
advocating and you think you come off as like pushy or or like vain or whatever, but it was cool to hear like, no, like <laughs> you have to ask for things. You have to be an advocate for yourself. been reading some articles lately about how women start sentences with, I'm sorry, but. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and I wonder, is that something you have thought about in, in your own experience or have you caught yourself doing that? Oh God, I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think that kind of across the board, it's, it's just difficult for women a lot of the time because you get that kind of stigma of coming off as like you're really pushy or bossy or whatever when you either tell someone to do something or ask for something that you think you deserve or is reasonable. And I think it's cool to have a resource of women who are like, these are also practical ways that we can help you like figure out how to ask if you're afraid or if you're struggling with that. And I think in my time covering Door County politics and just the public sphere, I think the Women's Fund is, has made an impact. Things like the story slam that they do in the winter where they give people an opportunity to just voice some of their experiences in a public setting. Um, the luncheon, bringing all these people together. And I think it's important to get young women around a lot of other women who have taken leadership roles. People mm-hmm. like Vicki Wilson and others who have been on boards and been in important positions. Because 10 years ago, I, I think I wrote an article called, after going to a Women's Fund luncheon of where are the women, basically... Very few were represented on the county board or a lot of municipal boards. Mm -hmm. And now there are, I think, seven or eight on the county board. There's a lot more on the municipal boards. People are running. We have a female sheriff. There's been a lot of change in these last 10 years. And it takes, I think, an organization like that to give people notice. Like, yeah, I can be in that seat. Mm -hmm. As a man, I think I take it for granted. I don't know about you, Andrew, but like I've grown up my whole life seeing men in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And when you go to these meetings all the time, you're like, yeah, I can see myself being in that seat. But if you're a woman and you're just sitting here, yeah, these seats are always filled by men. It takes another hurdle to see yourself getting in there. Right. Um, I mean, that's my conjecture. But oh, yeah, I, I no, would I would totally yeah. agree. Yeah. And at least from my perspective, like I started getting into politics maybe less than 10 years ago. So I've been seeing more diversity in politics, but it doesn't help that all of our presidents have been men. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> outside of one, all of our presidents have been white. So it's like politics definitely seemed like a white man's game for me for much of my youth. But at least in the time that I've been really starting to focus on politics, I've been seeing that sea change, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can only talk for myself, but I guess the question that I have for you, Maddie, from this is, are there are there other issues that were like illuminated for you or highlighted during the luncheon that you thought were interesting or things that there's still progress to be made on? Yeah. One thing that really stuck out to me that I thought was super interesting is I heard over and over again stories of women being like, there was a time in my life, especially a lot of the time when I was a working mom or I had young kids and I was also like in a high powered position where I just felt like so overwhelmed and I didn't know who to talk to. And then when women talk to other women and find out that they have the exact same experiences and have like different ways of dealing with things or like advice, it's really transformative and helpful. And it just blows my mind that all these women were in a room and had these same experiences, but at one point were like, oh, I wonder if anybody else feels the same way. Like, Because so, you got to act like powerful and I don't need help. I'm, right. I've got to be up here in, in, in this position. Right. Not to throw out the word feminism because I know everybody doesn't always like identify with that. But I think for me, that's been a change in politics and in feminism is that it's not like the soldier through. You can do everything at once. It's more like 
you can still take time to be feminine if you want or to have that girl time to be like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed. Everything is overwhelming. Like, that's okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then this year, the keynote speaker was Kim Kelleher. She's somebody I've interviewed a couple of times. She's a, I think, 1987 Gibraltar graduate who has worked as a publisher at Time at Sports Illustrated. I think she was the first woman publisher at both of those publications. Self um, has been involved in Internet startups. And I'm curious, I think that might have been one of the things she touched on is having that circle of support. Mm-hmm. And, and she mentioned that to me as well as like eventually over the years of her career is realizing, wait, I need to build those. I need to have those circles of women around me to, to lean on at various times. And she said earlier in her career, she didn't know she needed that. And she didn't even think that that was an option because those are huge, big time publishing leadership positions on mm-hmm. some of the most iconic names in the history of American publishing. And to admit that you need help to try and pull this all off has got to be hard. But I wonder what else did Kim talk about or what did you take away from her presentation? So she talked about what she called her tribe of women and like being able to build a group of people that are going to advocate for you too, which is kind of what you were saying was really important for her early in her career and continuing throughout. And she was just very inspiring to listen to because also of that like visibility of being in that really high powered position, but still having the vulnerability to say like, but there were times when I felt like I didn't have it all together. And then like pushing that forward and sharing it with other women is really powerful. And being a graduate from Gibraltar, I think there were girls there who are also going to that same high school who could see themselves and have that moment of like translation. I'm really happy that they brought her (laughs) into town because I grew up, I went to Gibraltar, I wrote for the student paper, I took the journalism class and was in love with writing from a very young age. I never learned when I was at Gibraltar that a Gibraltar graduate was in the publishing industry at that level. Like Mm -hmm. somehow, and this is part of what Alumni Door County is working on. If any of our listeners haven't heard about it, there's a new organization called Alumni Door County that's working to connect people who went to school here and maybe left the county and keep them connected to this area and to this school to be mentors, to be potential job connections, but also the alumni who stayed here to show what we want to do is show any kid in a school up here that all work is valuable, whatever Mm -hmm. you choose to do. And here are mentors that you can go and learn more about that from. And here is a potential future for you, whatever that might be, whether it's a fisherman or publisher at time, wherever you want to go, here are some models to follow. And it's kind of stunning. Like, I I think it's so great for her to come back. So like you said, some Gibraltar kids can sit there and go, oh man, somebody did this. Maybe someday I can shoot her an email and say, Mm -hmm. how do I get started? That alone is so valuable. And also to show, all right, I got to bust my butt and I actually can be there and I can be in that seat. So it's remarkable that they don't have that. Like I'm a sports guy. We put a sports hall of fame in our school's hallways. Um, a lot of our schools don't have a lot of things of saying, hey, here's so-and-so who's an engineer at this place. Here's mm-hmm. so-and-so who went to Harvard in the Peace Corps. And we don't have necessarily that humanity wall of fame, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, but we'll put the fastest person up on the wall. So I think hopefully through Alumni Door County, we can start doing more of that. Well, and, and two things that you had mentioned, Maddie, that I wanted to touch on because I thought they were so cool. When you were talking about feminism and what it means to be a feminist and that kind of stuff, 
feminism really is about equal rights. I mean, yeah. that's what it comes down to. <laughs> so then to have that and be like, well, if you're a feminist then you have to be this way or you have to be this way mm-hmm. or strong or something like that. And then to just go like, no, the whole reason that feminism is a thing is because we shouldn't be telling other people how to be people. Right. Right. Yeah. So to hear you say that, like uh, being vulnerable and surrounding yourself with advocates is great. And that's humanist uh, across the board. That's something that we should be teaching to everybody, young women especially, Mm -hmm. because if we sit there and we go like, okay, so the way that you can be better or the way that you can fight for equal rights is to be a certain type of person. It's like, well, then we're just, we're putting you in a box in a different way. (laughs) So it was really cool to hear you say that and, and that you took that away. But the other thing too is like, when you talked about the Gibraltar students being able to see somebody that they relate to. There's so much in popular culture that I took for granted growing up. Like I love superheroes, right? And I love comic books and superhero movies. Uh, And I took for granted the fact that all of the superheroes that I knew about or or the vast majority of them were white guys. So it's (laughs) like I could see myself as any of those superheroes as a young kid. Mm -hmm. And to be an African-American or an Asian child or a a young girl, like you you don't have those opportunities as much. Right. Or you're in a super tiny like costume if you are a superhero. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So like if you're a woman superhero, you have to be sexy. Yeah. Right. I I mean, (laughs) although maybe that's not fair because most of the men superheroes are also like. Super hunky guys, too. Yeah, okay, there, there's that, a bit okay, of that fair, back and forth. Fair, but, fair. It, but I mean, what you're talking about, Maddie, is like if you're like a female superhero fan, your options are mm-hmm. like up until recently, Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. who uh, was created by a man who was super into BDSM. Like Ooh. that's Wonder Woman's whole character. It's why she has the lasso of truth and is always tying men up. So it's oh, like no. there's going to be our listeners. BDSM, right. uh, yeah, BDSM. <laughs> if you've never heard of it before, uh, is uh, it's a fun kink. You should look it up. So to be like, oh yeah, my role model as a young woman is Wonder Woman, who is a sexual object in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's like that. That's super problematic. Right. And it's not until you know the last five, ten years that there are better female role models in those areas. I mean, that's what I can talk about because I like comic books. I'm not going to be like, yeah, now we've got female role models across the board. But you know what I mean? So no, it was cool to hear you mention those things and to to hear that those things are are a part of it. Yeah. And they touched on on the panel about dressing and like how to look professional in the workplace. And someone was talking about like, I don't want to wear pantyhose and heels all the time. Um, And that's changing too, I think women don't have to look a certain way to be in a professional position. I mean, there are obviously, like, guidelines, but I don't think it's as strict anymore. Right. Yeah, you are violating our dress code. Without, you uh. you don't have the shoulder pad suit on right now. We are very disappointed here. <laughs> Says Miles in the board shorts and boat shoes. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting, too. Um, from, like, a theater perspective, a lot of times you'll get guides for, like, how to audition and what to wear for an audition. And one of my actor colleagues in the Twin Cities posted this really heinous example of one of these guides. For the men, it was, like, three things. Like, smell good, uh, wear clothes, like, wear pants and you know, show up on time. Uh But then for women, it was like every element of it from makeup to hair to undergarments to all of it, to body size, to dressing so that you have a particular shape, like all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, that is ridiculous Mm -hmm. that that is the standard that we're holding people to. Mm -hmm. No one can hit all of that, especially when you're just auditioning for a play. Like I show up in a black t-shirt and black pants and I'm good to go. But you have to have a whole regiment to even 
to even audition. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I think that a lot of these things are difficult to talk about, too. Another kind of refrain that I was hearing at the women's luncheon was the tension between identifying yourself as a woman in business versus just like a person in business who's very successful and doing a good job. And when is it important to say, hey, these are the specific particular things that affect women? And when is it appropriate to be like, no, these are just things that everyone has to deal with. We should be better about listening to our employees. So, right. And it's weird as a woman to be like, well, as a woman, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I have this like, no, query. It's true. <laughs> well, so. and it's that fine line where it's like you don't want to just completely wash away people's differences because mm-hmm. that's not that's not very yeah. progressive either. But at the same time, you want to shoot for an environment where people are on equal ground, but people are are different and the things that make them different are being highlighted and at least right. being acknowledged when concerns arise. Do you have any other takeaways from the women's luncheon before we wrap up, Maddie? I mean, we've talked about a lot that I thought it was really interesting. A lot of the things that I've been thinking about just outside of going to this luncheon and how they intersect. And and again, it just kind of feeds back into the I'm always so amazed when people have the exact same issues going on. And when people get together and women get together, it's really beneficial. Well, with that, I think that we'll wrap up for this week. Thank you so much, Maddie, for chatting with me. And Miles, uh, I look forward to breaking down the news and more high school athletics with you as the season starts. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.